You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. Enjoying spring. Electricity prices have come down a bit. But before we get to that, we've got a a very distinguished guest to talk uh, with us today. Yes, we do. Look, it's my pleasure to welcome Tony Chappell, the head of the New South Wales Environment um, Protection Authority. Tony, thank you very much for um, joining the Energy Insiders podcast. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Giles and David. Yes, well, look, um, you've recently moved from the Australian Energy Market Operator, where I think um, you were this representative dealing with government and um, all sorts of different things. Now you find yourself head of the EPA. Congratulations. And I think more congratulations are deserved because you have just unveiled a proposal wherein New South Wales will become the first state to treat CO2 as a pollutant. Uh, right? That's right. Well, not quite right. Yes, no, that's right. That is how right. Did, how did this come about? Was this something that was sort of set in train before your arrival or did you just sort of burst through the doors and sort of say, let's get this done? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, look, uh, your listeners would understand, especially anyone who's worked in, in and around government, um, these are um, multifactorial challenges internally to negotiate through and um, everyone sort of plays a part. So I was pleased to be able to play a small part in how this landed and and taking it through um, the New South Wales government processes. But it's something that's been in train um, for, I guess, about 18 months, but was really given impetus about a year ago when uh, there was a court case um, brought by a group called Bushfire Survivors Against Climate Change, uh, who uh, were basically asking the court um, to make uh, an order requiring the EPA to uh, be more proactive in terms of how it was considering various pollutants that were contributing to climate change. And then uh, what the court found was um, the EPA had a duty uh, to protect the community from the harm and risk uh, and the environment of of climate change and made some orders um, requiring, I guess, the EPA to to produce a policy and a few other bits and pieces. And um, so we're doing a few things here, but one of the things we're doing here is very much looking to meet the requirements of that order um, as we go out for consultation with this climate change policy. That's, it's interesting. So this is basically a response from a legal case uh, brought by people concerned about the environment, a court order. How hard, what sort of resistance did you come up against to actually bring this to reality? Um, look, I think, I mean, some of the listeners who are my age or older and observe American politics might remember 22 years ago when uh, George Bush and Al Gore were facing off for the presidential election. And um Gore had quite a significant climate policy and the uh, George Bush's response oh, to the issue was to suggest that uh, the American EPA should regulate CO2 like a pollutant. So it's not a, re- uh, it's not a really a radical idea, but it's certainly one that um, it's fair to say there's been a lot of uh, inertia um, to get to this point. Uh, I think there's an understandable concern from industry uh, about duplication with 
federal settings. I mean, you might recall many years ago now, New South Wales had one of the first um, essentially carbon trading scheme across the electricity sector, which was um, shut down once the federal government brought in their um, emissions trading architecture. So um, there's quite a long history in New South Wales of innovation in the space, but there's obviously a a lot of hesitancy to try and you know to, to to compete with where the federal government sits with these settings. These are you know ideally these are national sort of solutions. But I think um, what we've been able to do here is craft a policy that very much complements what what happens with the safeguard mechanism. We're going to keep engaging with the Commonwealth government as they evolve that. Uh, but you know as as we look to make sure New South Wales meets its own target of a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030, and then obviously net zero. Um, we want to give ourselves enough runway and do the work to make sure we can do that in a, a granular and, and efficient way across the whole economy. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you talked about there being inertia, um, you know, George Bush, you, you're sort of saying this, this is not or at least should not be controversial. So you talked about inertia in Australia. Presumably that's because there was great resistance to the idea um, within industry and, um, and therefore government for the, for the last 15, 20 years, however long it's been since. <laughs> oh, look, I think we've all, <laughs> many of us have various scars from debates and um, conflict around uh, these issues, not just in, in the energy sector, but yeah. it's obviously been particularly acute there. And I think the great thing today, as you look across the country, is every jurisdiction is very much aligned on making progress. And, you know, one of my almost sadnesses in stepping out of AEMO is there's a real acceleration, I think, of the things AEMO has been banging on about um, in terms of getting the transition done in a way that serves consumers and a, and, a, and a really strong alignment across government now. So hopefully that will also feed into, you know, all of the other sectors and settings that need to evolve to make sure as we transition the economy to a, a zero carbon place that we're seizing the right opportunities and we're, we're being sort of efficient and um, commercially rational and we're creating investable solutions um, along the way. Well, so. Yeah. It's actually quite significant, isn't it? Because just in the last couple of weeks, we've had state ministers agree to put environment into the national electricity objective, something that's been missing for the last yes. two decades. And now we're effectively putting environment and um, climate into the planning process. So I mean, tell me, I mean, just how significant uh, is, is this EPA move or, or both of them? Well, look, I think I'm an observer now on electricity markets rather than um, a participant, but I uh, from my point of view, um, having the net zero objective enshrined in the national electricity and gas objectives is is very important. And it means that all regulators, state or federal, as they look at energy, can be very clear. The question to answer is, what is the most efficient way to get to that solution, rather than trying to bolt on sustainability <clears throat> around the edges of what the the efficient solution is if you ignore that, um, which is where regulators have been previously. Um, and then, look, you mentioned the planning system, and, it, and that's one of the um, areas where I think both industry and the community have been quite frustrated um, that emissions and how to consider them hasn't, hasn't been transparent, it hasn't been rigorous, it hasn't been consistent. Um, and so one of the, the things that um, we'll be looking to do um, as, as the New South Wales government is um, with, with my colleagues in planning, really develop a framework for how those major projects are assessed. But that's only one, one piece here. I mean, 
you look across the economy, there's obviously many sources of um, not just carbon, but other greenhouse gas pollutants. And um, we need to spend the next 18 months now working closely with every sector on what their own plans are, not just to reduce their emissions, um, but also to consider their own resilience. And that's a, another really important part of what the New South Wales EPA has done here is we, one of the first things we want to do is working with all our licensees, and we license about 50,000 businesses that um, emit you know, various kinds of pollution around the state, that we want them to be developing their own plans on how they transition their emissions down and connecting them to government support where that's um, useful or required, but also very much thinking about resilience and how they adapt to the kind of extreme climate impacts we, we expect to see more of in the future, which we've all lived through in the last few years, at least um, on the East Coast with the horrendous black summer bushfires and then obviously the floods more recently. So, Tony, it's interesting. Um, I think New South Wales is about 150 million tonnes, more or less, of CO2 equivalent. Is that right? Yeah, it's, a, that's, it's about that, I think, maybe, maybe 160 or so, but I, you're, you're about right, David. And I was interested, just uh, reading through the graphs on, on the EPA site, that about 50 million tonnes, more or less, uh, which is a third roughly of that, is actually methane as opposed to straight uh, <laughs> conventional uh, pure CO2. Mm, it I mean, it varies. I think the biggest methane, well, I mean, there's a, series, a variety of methane sources, but I, th I think you're, you're about right. I was just going to say it sort of varies based on... Um, year by year based on um, how advanced particular projects are because I think in mining it's the new pro it's it's the opening up of a new sort of seam where the big release happens and then there's obviously fugitive emissions over time as well but it does sort of vary over the life of each asset absolutely and of course just as with other states but I think New South Wales because it has a very largely um, coal-fired fired fueled electricity uh, electricity and stationary energy in general is about close to 50% of the total uh, emissions. But I wanted to ask generally, I mean, the, the process that, that um, the EPA is going to do to start with is kind of uh, observe and talk and look for feedback. Uh, I mean, which, you know, uh, I'm a kind of action guy. It, it doesn't sound like an awful lot. Um, look, it's... I think we all sort of understand the urgency of of progress on these issues, but I guess um, we also need to be rigorous and methodical and efficient as we go about um, bringing regulatory force into play here. And for example, um, there are different cost curves sector by sector, and there are you know already some significant. Um, policies in place, as, as your listeners would be well aware, in terms of the New South Wales electricity sector, where um, you know very substantial um, work has gone on to uh, essentially bring on and underwrite the transmission and renewables and firming and storage um, that the state's going to need. So, you know, it 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 may not be useful um, to try to to step into that on additionally, and sort of um, we need we need the coal stations to remain in place until we have the new capacity in. So, um, you know, we just need to think through very carefully 
what role I, 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 regulation I, like this has in the energy sector, for example, I, rather than... I, I can agree with that. And I, I can agree that things are in place. Everyone can see that uh, that the New South Wales electricity has a, has a clear plan and one that uh, I, most people uh, support. That's clear from in the politics. But if I'm just coming back to this methane and, and um, uh, coal mining, uh, uh, you know, the first point I want to make is the scope three emissions, which are not New South Wales EPA's responsibility. But when anyone with an interest in this topic looks at the global side of things, it's quite clear that exporting coal is kind of uh, uh, inconsistent with a view that you want to reduce global warming. It, notwithstanding that, it's the it's a scope three emission, and if it goes to say India, it's kind of India's responsibility. We've passed the buck. But uh, if you look at all those methane emissions, I mean, underlying it, there must be a lot of uh, emissions overall associated with coal mining generally in the court cases that you referred to at the beginning and other ones have kind of stressed coal's role in contributing and I'm, uh, how, should the, how, how should the EPA be uh, considering this in its action plan? Um, well, look, we very much will consider it. As you said, um, fugitive emissions from mining are a material source. I mean, in our draft <clears throat> policy, we also reference um, an action plan, which we've released also for consultation. And in that we're proposing um, a number of initial steps. One would relate to the off-road diesel vehicles the sector uses and some fuel efficiency uh, and essentially emission standards for those. Um, there, There is, um, I think a lot of potential to bring best practice to bear um, in in mining projects here. But we, I mean, I understand the sector's done a number of things already to try to lower its emissions. And we just want to make sure, particularly with the safeguard mechanism and potentially, um, you know, there's this other global compact around methane specifically um, that I think the Commonwealth is considering. But whatever happens in that space, we just want to make sure we're joined up and not duplicating you know, obligations put on industry from from the Commonwealth. And it does feel like a, a long amount of time to take 18 months or so to consult and work through that. But I think it'll be time well spent because my experience with these things, if if, if you rush and get them wrong or cause perverse outcomes, the, the legitimacy of the whole sort of regulatory architecture gets called into question. Um, and so often the long way is actually the short way. That sounds good to me. I'm going to hand back to Giles in a second, but I... I... Uh, had this last question, which is just, I mean, the thing about it is that New South Wales has recognised, or the EPA has recognised CO2 as, as pollution, which even if it does hark back to the Federal Labor's Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, actually it's pretty unusual, is it, to, to have CO2 recognised as, as pollution per se in, in environmental um, jurisdictions around the world. How, how how do you think about this in a, on a you know geographic comparative sort of uh, thing? Well, we look in developing this. We did look around the world, and we do work regularly with um, other equivalent bodies, not just in Australia but offshore, and share ideas um, and and sort of practices. And a number of environmental regulators are moving in this direction. I think. Um, you can probably expect to see a number of other Australian EPAs look to um, think about the issue in a in a in a similar way. I I don't want to prejudge 
what any of them do, and they're obviously going to look closely at what we do. But um, there are um, the US EPA, you know, has has had a number of sort of um, iterations of this, and obviously gone through the courts as well. Um, and then I think even the recent legislation um, that the the US government adopted reaffirmed CO2 and climate uh, greenhouse gases essentially as 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 pollutants for the EPA to regulate. Um, I think in New Zealand um, they take a similar view, uh, but it is you know at least in Australian terms we, we're the first regulator moving um, this way, but I'm sure we won't be the last. Does this mean then that if you've got a big gas um, exploitation project um, out in Western New South Wales and stuff like that, that you guys will be making a decision on that? sort of and, and trying to sort of analyze what that means for the new south wales targets i mean do you have to sort of focus it back on what the new south wales and the federal government targets are or do you what are the other criteria that you might use if indeed you have that power to sort of um make um, recommendations on on such things yeah well i mean i think the way the way the planning system currently um considers these projects is it's fair to say you know i think most people would agree it's not optimal there's no clear framework for the decision makers to reference and use and um, so we want to develop that in terms of existing projects we want to um, look at how they move to best practice and what is sort of commercially viable for them in the near term and longer term and where there might be a role for government support I mean the New South Wales government has um, already committed uh, I think just over a billion dollars in various industry funding streams for you know various parts of the economy to access as they transition um, so we, we want to be um, I think seizing the opportunities of the of the future um, very much as we move down this path um, but yes ultimately um, the New South Wales target is 50% by 2030 and um, I think the EPA would be failing in its role if it was uh, not regulating to that effect. And so when you're talking about regulating, are you sort of talking about then making, um, providing guidance um, for other people to sort of adopt or are you actually, I, 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 do you have the capability of intervening and making decisions about things? No, it's, it's all of those things, Giles. Mm. So, um, you know, we have, as, as most regulators do, we've got a pretty broad toolkit and we want to start with um, what we're calling climate mitigation and adaptation plans and asking licensed businesses to produce mm. those, to track their own emissions, report on that publicly and on their plans to reduce those emissions, but also, importantly, their plans to build the resilience and, and adapt um, to I, I, I guess one of the big questions was one of the most controversial projects in New South Wales is like the Narrabri gas project. So would that get approval from the EPA um, under these new guidelines? Well, I think it's fair to say fugitive emissions from that project would be a major focus. I think um, the, you know, I'm actually, I haven't actually looked um, at that project specifically since I commenced. Mm in this role. Um, so I think that project um, is fairly well through the pro planning process. From my understanding, I think it does have all its necessary approvals, um, but I'm, I'm, I might have to check that. But I think 
you know, for existing projects, what we're focused on is really how do they demonstrate best practice and how do they reduce their emissions over time? Um, and sorry, you. Yeah, no, because I'm, I'm just, I mean, I guess that's big, going to be the big question for most people about, okay, well, there's another Narrabri emerges, you know, is that going to get through or does that get sort of stopped at some point? And I guess we've seen what's happened in the Northwest Shelf too, with the EPA over there in Western Australia, getting what some people describe as bullied by the state government to sort of, you know, allow um, approvals. I mean, would that circumstance change if they had legislation also declaring CO2 as a pollutant? Um. I, I can't speak really to WA. I think the key point um, for us is, firstly, we have to be joined up um, with broader government policy. Now, happily in New South Wales, you know, the, the science says the least you need to do is sort of 50% by 2030 globally, and, and the state's adopted that as its target. So that's a good start. And we're um, looking at the issue in those terms. Uh, for new projects, I think the minimum we'd need is sort of best available, um, best class sort of practices. But I'm just, I'm reluctant to sort of um, rule particular things in or out because each sector is going to have low hanging fruit and more readily achievable and less, you know, more, more costly opportunities here. And what we want to do is make sure um, we're accessing the most cost effective opportunities in the initial few years as the the whole economy um, shifts in a major way. No, I get that. I, want, I wanted to, oh, yeah, um, uh, sorry, it's running through all the various sectors. One of the most vexed topics uh, every time we come to look at percentage reductions is, is land use, you know, and, and whether it, the starting point is the right point. It's pretty pointless in going into that. But I mean, um, land use is kind of a topic for, for the rural sector in New South Wales. It's quite important. And yes. and um, I don't know whether there is any regulation anymore on forest clearing or farmland clearing and stuff like that. I mean, how how are you? Uh, what uh, what's going on there? No, look, there is regulation um, on all of that. The EPA regulates um, what we call crown forestry, which is the public state forest um, logging and harvesting operations, and then what what's called private native forestry, which is essentially um, timber cutting on on private land. We don't regulate um, land clearing for other purposes for for farms and so on. But um, I actually think there's a huge opportunity here for Australia and for New South Wales um, in terms of uh, the the opportunity for um, you know just shifts in, in practices that maintain productivity but also enhance carbon sequestration and long-term soil health and regenerative agriculture. And I think right across um, the sector, um, that will be a really big opportunity. We wanna enable that, we wanna connect farmers to it. Um, that's, a, I think, a, gonna necessarily be a very big focus. And, and since we're running around the sectors, uh, then there's transport's another one. Uh, I mean, you know, New South Wales, I think, is years and years behind on its uh, electric buses, and no doubt they're all getting behind is a fairly common thing. Uh, um, I guess it's it's a pretty big role the EPA has, in, but it, it really comes does it come into new projects as much? I mean. When you think about your influence overall, is it on regulating existing activities and changing standards, or is it on uh, approving new projects of one sort or another? I mean, how does the EPA influence manifest itself? 
Uh, well, I think we really need to think about both. I mean, the environment doesn't care where the emissions come from. It just cares, you know, what the level is. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, we're working already very closely with our infrastructure and transport colleagues on how do we embed lower carbon um, procurement and sustainability into the supply chain and the procurement for these mega projects, which obviously can have a major footprint and, and often do. Um, but we're also um, looking forward now, uh, once this policy is finalised, to working you know, across the different parts of the, the value chain and the different sectors within a space like that to just make sure um, our existing policy uh, is joined up and, and we're targeting those great opportunities. I mean, electrification is a, a really interesting opportunity. There's obviously major supply chain issues um, at the moment, as anyone who's trying to buy an electric vehicle would, would be aware of, but the government also has some, some pretty good policy there that the people like the EV Council have been very positive on. And so I think, you know, if there are other opportunities in a space like that, we very much want to explore those. Tony, we're probably getting towards the end of the podcast. Um, I'm just going to sort of slightly sort of a different question. Um, you've spent a lot of time um, within at the heart of this sort of green energy transition in your role in AEMO, and you just sort of mentioned at the start of the podcast that you're now an observer, an outside observer of the electricity market. Um, how different does it look from the outside than it does from the inside? Um, <laughs> it looks better <laughs> and it looks worse. <laughs> And, and look, I'm, I can give you a couple of pebbles. If you want to throw a couple of stones through some windows, you're most welcome to. But uh, <laughs> now that you're now that you're outside, <laughs> uh, well, I'm uh, I'm a, a humble public servant, Giles. So, um, oh, okay, I'll take the pebbles back then. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think maybe the, the thing I miss is um, at least from AEMO's point of view, I was across things that were underway and work that was being done and thinking that was being done. So when I saw issues in the public realm and, and I knew that we had work underway, I never felt um, perhaps as bad as other observers might have felt just seeing those circumstances. Um, so obviously I don't have that advantage now, uh, but... No, no, now you have to rely on renew economy. I do. And, you know, you've, you've pioneered <laughs> um, sharing the news in this space over many years. I've been a, a regular reader. So thank you for your leadership. Well, thank, um, you, thank you, Tony. I, I mean, our role... My role now really with energy is helping my colleagues understand how we might um, make sure that the outcomes they're, they're negotiating and talking about in the, for the new, all the new investment, the huge amount of new investment, that it does deliver the sort of sustainability and carbon outcomes that we're expecting. And if, if needed, you know, what, what are the regulatory sort of settings that can help back that up? Um, and then uh, obviously working with the existing plant owners to try and improve their performance um, for as long as they're operating as well. So I guess in uh, New South Wales as well, Tony, I mean, if you talk about where electricity, decarbonising electricity uh, also brings us to the behind the meter uh, sector and, mm. general, and the general uh, electrification of everything once electricity is green, they're kind of two separate topics, particularly uh, the industrial electrification. But if I talk about the household sector, there's a lot of people live in New South Wales. Uh, yes. the, the solar, the residential solar penetration is still only what it is. You know, it, it could be bigger, in my opinion. Um, mm. There's a lot that could still be done uh, there, but is it really within the EPA's uh, uh, pur purview uh, to, to look at that? Um, look, not so much directly, but I think where we do have a role is um, bringing 
the renewable sector into the circular economy in, in um, recycling and design standards for some of these products that are going to be ubiquitous, we, particularly with batteries, you know, the safe disposal and reuse of those. Um, we can avoid a lot of legacy issues if we get that right now. And New South Wales has some really pioneering circular economy legislation that enables design standards to be set across the board. And we'll be working to do that in a nationally aligned way. But if, um, I, I guess as with many things, if um, if the Commonwealth is dragging its feet too much, New South Wales has the ability to move ahead because as you say, it is a third of Australia. And I think um, when New South Wales does something well, it becomes a good example that other jurisdictions look to. And I hope uh, in, right across the um, power sector, we can really bring the circular economy to life now as materials um, evolve. I've seen, you know, we've got recycling happening now with wind turbine blades. Obviously we've got a huge, um, number of batteries and solar panels to still be installed, but they'll all come to the end of their life at one point. And we want to make sure those are those are opportunities for reuse, not you know just legacy contaminants we're going to need to manage in decades to come. Thank you, Tony. Um, we might just sort of come across some other issues at the moment, just a quick wrap up before the end of the podcast. Um, David, has anything caught your eye over the last few days um, since we did the last episode? Well, that's Giles. The thing that caught my eye was a story you wrote uh, uh, about the AER, and I, I don't wish to, uh, I hope Tony doesn't, won't comment on this, I'm sure he won't, but I mean, it does seem to me that, you know, when the Energy Security Board wants to talk about a capacity market, and they can't even estimate the capacity factor of what's out there at the moment. Uh, doesn't seem to offer much hope. I, you know, I really feel the AER has been uh, a bit of a disappointment in this whole decarbonisation process. Seems to be dragging the chain and making things as hard as possible for everyone. I don't. So, I thought that story deserved uh, to get a few a bit of attention. Well, it did get a bit of attention, actually, yes. And this story, um, just to sort of explain to listeners who um, may not have read it, it was basically the AER did their wholesale uh, markets report for the June quarter. Um, look, it was just fine as it, went, as it went. And I was a really bit surprised to sort of find the amount of focus that they actually put on solar and wind output during the quarter. And particularly when they drew attention to Queensland and said that actually there was much less solar generation than was expected and this caused prices to go up because more other generation was needed and that generation was very expensive and I actually looked at the cap and just going, hang on, that doesn't sound right. Like anyone who's sort of been watching the market can go, hang on, that doesn't sound right at all. And we worked out that they basically assumed that a thousand megawatts of new capacity had been added to the grid in Queensland in the last 12 months, which is bollocks. Projects that will eventually deliver 1,000 megawatts have started um, being connected, but they're only half built and some of them are barely built at all. I mean, probably only about 100 or 150 megawatts has been added. So for the AER to get something as fundamentally wrong and to say that 1,000 megawatts has been added to the grid when it hasn't, that capacity, fact capacity factors have gone down when they've actually gone up, and to say that sort of less generation than anticipated was delivered rather than more is just quite extraordinary. And, you know, um, as you alluded to, I mean, if they can't get the capacity factor right, then how can they get the capacity mechanism right? And it's just really disappointing. I don't know how many people work on that project and how much review it went or who knows what they're doing over there. But um, it's just yet another example where there just doesn't seem to be um, 
much appreciation. I, I, I guess, I, I guess the point is, David, is this sort of this ability to keep up with technology, this new way of thinking about the grid. There's absolutely no doubt. Taimo have made it very clear. We are changing. It's the biggest and fastest transition in the century. We've got to think about this um, grid differently. It now seems pretty certain that AEMO is doing that, but it's not entirely clear that the other institutions are doing so. Well, and more broadly, I think there are two other points that I want to make, and they're just sort of thinking points. Not The first one is that I've said many times that I'm not sure that the model of the future electricity market or the market we're in today, where nearly everything is at zero marginal cost, so what's the point of a merit order? Uh, at all, uh, where you end up with these situations where one unit of coal sets a, or jet gas sets a very, very high price when, you know, 60, 50, 40, 30 percent of it's coming from zero marginal cost, but that, that zero marginal cost stuff still has to earn a return. So, so that's on the market facing side of things. But then we also have this entire, the biggest sector in Australia is the regulated sector, really, when you look at the in, invested capital base, it's, it's still the wires and poles. And there's been very little innovative thinking, certainly none at all that I can think of from the regulated side of things, uh, about how, how much evolution is needed uh, as, we, as we move to an inverter-based grid. And the networks have this incredible ability, or will have, to actually contribute uh, to system services uh, and to actually running the grid. And you know, with 20% of electricity eventually coming from behind the meter, you know, that, that they're major generators, and yet and yet they're operating in a kind of regulated space in a way. So the, that's one issue. The second, almost entirely separate issue, is that the capacity market uh, doesn't look like it's going ahead. It's been devolved back to the states. Something will still happen, like, as in New South Wales. But the fact that it didn't, you know, when when leaders don't uh, don't achieve policy goals that they set out to achieve or and announce that they're going to get to then that weakens them, you know, and it's weakened the ESB, in my opinion, that it has taken back to capacity market, taken a long, long time to get there, and then had it rejected. And so, unfortunately, this lack leads to uh, a lack of authority and a lack of leadership in the overall management. It's not a case, there's too much responsibility and not enough executive management. I've always felt that we, we need a, an energy czar or something like that, someone with some uh, to, to, to progress things further than they are, but we're probably not going to get there. So anyway, my point I just want to make too is that the ESB's authority has been further weakened by the fact that it hasn't been able to get its capacity market proposals uh, agreed on. Well, I quite like the idea of the energies are, um, or at least I think I do, but um, it probably depends on the um, on, on the quality of the person that um, gets that position. It's interesting what you say about the merit order. Um, it's um, they're now having a big think in Europe and the UK, particularly about actually separating those markets. So, as you say, if a, if a unit of coal electricity sets a price at fifteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour, it's different in Europe and, and and UK. That floods through everything, and it makes everything look expensive. And sure, wind and solar needs to get a return, but in the same way that many of the lock in the power power purchase agreements which is a fixed price over a certain amount of time they're looking at making sure that those prices in the market are reflected in consumer bills because why get cheap wind and solar if your whole damn bit bill is um is is pushed up by this sort of big prices in wholesale markets that's easily more easily said than actually done and it's incredibly complicated to separate those two markets um you're basically rewriting the rules right from scratch so anyway 
Tony, maybe we can just sort of finish off. Um, one, um, um, you probably don't want to buy into some of the internal politics of all these different things, but I'm kind of interested to know your view. I mean, you've seen the inside workings of the electricity market from AEMO's point of view. You've had a great insight into government. Now you've moved over to the EPA. You get an interesting look in, in um, government and also with industry. You've got young kids. We've kind of got this climate target you've kind of got your finger on some of the levers or at least sort of you know associated with some of those levers and it's a big question i keep on asking people now because you know 1.5 degrees can we do it i mean you know do we have the ability and the mechanism and the will to actually get there not counting feedback loops of course but um, you know, to do our bit to try and cap the emissions that we're you know still sending out into the economy um well, these, I mean, change happens very, very slowly and then it happens much faster than you, you sort of think it will. Um, the, I think the latest I read from the IPCC said we, we probably can't stay at 1.5, but we can stay close to that. And that very much has to be the goal. Um, but I also think there are opportunities we're just exploring for um, in regenerative agriculture that globally will do some very significant sequestration that I hope can sort of help us close that gap. Um, so look, I'm optimistic, uh, not naively so, but um, there's a good book I read actually over the summer called Ministry for the Future. I don't know if you guys have, have read it, but it's by a Swiss climate fiction author um, and sort of looking back from a few decades into the future about how the world did manage to hit at least a two degree climate target. Um, and I think we can do much better than they do in that book. Yeah, I love science fiction, but uh, so I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. Giles, I want to ask you one question. When, when was the last time we actually had a new wind or solar farm announced as committed and going ahead? You know, with, have you reported on one of those just in the last uh, few weeks? Um, well, we've got the Goiter South um, wind farm in South Australia, but they haven't announced that twice. That's announced that for the old Liberal government. What is a government project? Government, oh, the carping government project's only been announced twice. Keep going. <laughs> oh, look, um, um, no, um, no, this is my point, right? Point because I've got, um, yes, um, some battery projects, um, maybe. Darlington Point, um, big battery. Um, a couple of things are being built at the moment, bluegrass, western downs. Oh, the, the stuff being blue, built. But, but my but, point is we're not getting right. We need to accelerate, not slow down. And, and until the New South Wales project's uh, first tender gets announced for a, gig, for a gigawatt, we're just not getting the new projects actually committed and started. You know, and, and this is the pipeline is actually going slower rather than faster just at the moment. Now, I know there's, there's endless capital in the wings and... Uh, this is also another remarkable week in that we didn't have a new hydrogen or, or offshore wind farm announcement. Well, we probably did, but I just didn't read it this yes, time. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yeah. But, but <laughs> I, want, I want my basic bread and butter, which is my new solar and wind farms. And I want to see a project every week and are just not getting them at the moment. And, uh, you know, so that's my disappointment. Well, there you go. That's the challenge for everybody out there now. Um, we need a new wind farm and solar farm being committed and built, guys. Not just announced, not just hoped for, um, not something 10 years into the future, not a bit of land grabbing or ocean grabbing to sort of sell to another developer further down the track. We actually want some commitments and some things being built. Um, Tony Chappell, uh, CEO of the Environmental Protection Authority in New South Wales. 
Once again, congratulations on your appointment. Congratulations on this initiative. And thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles, David. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Tony. Indeed. Um, and thank you, David, once again. Um, it's going to be interesting over the next few weeks because I'm going to be um, hopping in a plane and flying off to... Um, to Europe for a while, so we'll still be doing the podcast, but um, maybe in a different time zone. Um, thanks also to our sponsors, uh, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing and continued support. Thanks for all the listeners out there. If you do have any suggestions, any ideas, any comments, please do send them through, editor at reneweconomy.com.au. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.